Welcome to the podcast, People More Interesting Than Me. I'm your host, Michael Strumsky. Today's guest is the best-selling author of Drinking and Knowing Things. He's a certified sommelier with the Guild of Master Sommeliers, a certified specialist of wine, and a Master of Wines candidate with the Institute of Masters of Wine. He runs the wildly popular Drinking and Knowing Things wine blog, which was adapted into a book that provides 52 specific wine recommendations. He is the founder of the Bhutan Wine Company and is leading the development of the wine industry in the magical Himalayan country. He owns the award-winning SoCal Rum Company. Michael is a professor at the Paul Mirage School of Business at the University of California, Irvine. He lives in SoCal, where he spends his time blind tasting and doing extreme sports. Enjoy. Today I have with me is Michael Jurgens, And the question I was going to ask you, and after my amazing intro of you, sir, do you think that's why you have just gone expansive with your interests? As, as I just listed, all the things that you have your hands into, racing, wine, you have your own blog, your own book. It, so just to just let, let's just go deep right from the get go. But I think I was always curious in, about stuff. And then I ended up getting a little caught up in the corporate world and chasing the big corporate money. And, you know, I'm a partner in a big firm and, and all this stuff. And in the middle of that, I went through a super, super gnarly divorce mm-hmm. that lasted 13 years. Yeah, 13 years. I, I hold the record for one of the longest divorces in Orange County history. Um, and through that process, I, I did a lot of, had to do a lot of soul searching. Right. And, and at the end of it, I, what I concluded was that we, you get one trip, you get one ride on the merry-go-round, that's it. And so really what makes me happy is doing epic shit with cool people more so than money or anything else. Like go make have the best fucking stories of anybody in your friend group, you know, go do that stuff. And so I adopted that mantra for my life. Um, this is probably maybe 15 years ago now, um, where I just said, look, I'm going to measure everything with that yardstick, epic shit, cool people. If it's not both, I don't want to do it. Um, and it was kind of a little bit like that movie. Yes. Men with Jim Carrey. Remember that? Yeah. Where yeah. I just started going like, all right, you want to go to Antarctica and run a marathon? Yep. You want to go diving with great white sharks? Yep. That sounds epic. With cool people, let's go. And so when I started doing that, um, every every piece of my life became better. I became more successful in every aspect of my life, and I ended up having these amazing um, experiences. And so I think that's kind of what, what allowed me to transfer just being curious about stuff to actually doing this sort of range of different shit that I did. Um, and... Yeah, why not for everybody? But it works for me, and you know. Yeah. So I have a kid, and when I when I see him do stuff, it's just like something that fascinates him just would bore me to death. But in your retrospect, do you see like your with your serotonin intake? Do you keep on trying to top to the next one? Like he's building blocks, but maybe in like twenty years he's skydiving because he's at that level. Is that? Is or do you escalate? That's that's my main question. 
Um, I definitely escalate. Yeah, I definitely. It's you know, I'm like the heroin addict looking for the the bigger high. You know, I want to jump out of a, a a higher airplane or you know do something that's even more um, you know risky. So I I do, but I think it's less about the serotonin. I don't know actually. That's a good question. Um, but what I believe it is for me is this idea of trying to find the the best version of myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was running marathons in, in cities. And then I realized like, wow, there's not a lot of risk. You know, there's a medical tent every, uh, every quarter mile. And there's lots of people there. Like you're not really pushing yourself to the limits here. Like go, go run some marathons or go run some ultra marathons in some places that don't have safety nets and, and see what happens, you know, see, see how far you can push yourself and what you're actually capable of doing. Uh, and so that, that's kind of what I try to do is like, what, what else am I capable? Let's go see. Um, as opposed to that, I get a high off it. Although I do get a high off. It. <laughs> I'll be honest. Like I do, but I don't know that that's the driving motivation behind why. So tell me a little bit. I, I had never heard about this. They actually have marathons in Antarctica. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, um, what's that? Like? Uh, I, so, um, they have, mar- there's a bunch of islands around Antarctica. So they do a couple uh, marathons on some of the islands. What we did was we flew a, by the way, Antarctica is big. It's like the size of fucking Australia. We flew a jet all the way into the interior of Australia and landed on the, the Union Glacier, which is about 12 miles long, which is terrifying, by the way, because the jet lands and you just kind of skid around, but there's nothing to hit. So you just kind of skid and like it's, it's crazy. And then you jump out and you, run a marathon it was like negative 50 degrees and 50 mile an hour winds and um i almost died <laughs> i got lost and we ended up snowed in intense for five days because the the weather was too intense for people to come get us out but yeah like when you go through something like that and i remember there was one point in the race right probably about mile 20 where i was lost it was the middle of a blizzard i couldn't see more than about two feet in front of me i was freezing and they had told us that in the safety briefing, they're like, as long as everything hurts, you're good. When stuff starts going numb, that's when you need to start to worry. And I was starting to go numb all over, and I had sweated in my balaclava, and then it had frozen to my head, <laughs> which was not cool. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember sitting there thinking, like, I'm going to die. There is a very real chance I wasn't going to die right now. And there's no, there's no cell service. You can't call for help. There's no, you know, safety tent every, every mile. It's, it's you and it's time to do or die, literally do or die. And so I was lost in this blizzard on this glacier and I'm screaming at the universe. Like, I'm not going out like this, just finding like anger to try to fuel me to get out of it. And I was able to push through it and get out of it and get to the end. And, and, uh, Actually, funny story. So I, I get to the end of the of the race finally, and I run across the finish line. And I'm way later than everybody else. Like there's only like 30 people that did this, and most of them had already finished. And I run across the finish line and I fall down on the ground and I'm laying on this glacier and I'm just sobbing uncontrollably, just crying. And the race director comes over to me and he stands over me. I'm laying on the ground and he goes, He goes, dude, we screwed up. 
we weren't watching when you came through. We didn't get your photo. Uh, do you want to get up and run back through so we could get a photo? And I'm laying on the ground crying. And I go, no, I don't. <laughs> I can't do it. And he looks at me and he goes, and he's wearing this big furry hat. And <laughs> I just remember, like, he's standing over me with this furry hat. And he goes, well, don't you want your photo? And I was like, God damn it, I do want my photo. So I pulled myself up and I stumbled across the finish line the other direction for about two feet. And then I turned it and I just stumbled through to have this picture of me like stumbling across the finish line uh, in, in a blizzard. So I got my photo. But yeah, uh, good times. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. So let's talk more about your true passion, wine. So when I was reading it, and I thought this is what the number one thing my audience is going to ask once we bring this up, master of wine. What's the difference between master of wine and a sommelier? Mm. I get asked that question quite a bit. So in the wine world, there are two uh, professional certification tracks for the industry. One is a sommelier track and one is what's called WSET. The sommelier track consists of four levels. You could be a level one, level two, level three, or a master sommelier. There's about 400 master songs in the world. Sommeliers, and by the way, I am also a level two sommelier. Um, okay. But sommeliers, for the most part, that professional track is designated to teach you how to serve wine in restaurants. Mm -hmm. um, you serve tables, you pair wine with food, you talk about the aromatics of the wine. I don't want to work in a restaurant. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not what I'm interested in. And then the WSET track, which culminates in a map in a master of wine designation. There's about 400 masters of wine in the world too. Um, is much more focused on like the business of wine and mm -hmm. all of the aspects of growing grapes and and making wine and selling wine and marketing and so on and so forth. So that to me is more interesting. I started on the sommelier track, and then I realized kind of early on, like ah, uh, this isn't for me. Let me jump over and and change tracks. And so I've been doing that for I don't know about eight years now. There's more astronauts in the United States than our masters of wine. There's only like 60 masters of wine in the US. So it's it's uh, not a trivial thing to do, but um, it's one of those super douchey astronaut certifications that the only people that care about it are the people that care about it. <laughs> Nobody else does. But I'm working on it. We'll see. No, I mean, the way you've explained it, it's basically from, uh, it's probably past farm to table. Basically, you're taking the life of the grape to the very end when it gets consumed or even past consumption. Basically, what, 50, 60? Because some bottles go for how many? What's what's like the oldest bottle of wine that's ever been uh, drank? That that was actually good. I guess ever. The, the oldest bottle of wine I've ever drank was an 1840 Madeira, which I drank about two years ago. So at the time, it was about 180 years old, um, and it was delicious. By the way, the most expensive bottle of wine I ever drank was a uh, Burgundy that was about thirty thousand bucks a bottle. But there are more expensive bottles than than that for sure. Okay. Yeah. So I yeah, you could you could spend a ton of money on 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 wine. Um, but you don't have to. I mean, I, like I, I, the price of wine is often correlated with quality, mm -hmm. um, but the price of wine is truly a function of supply and demand. Mm -hmm. Most of the wine I drink, like this one I'm drinking right now, 
is a is a gamay from um, New Zealand. It's delicious, and it was like twenty two bucks. So if you kind of know what you're doing, and you can avoid the supply and demand imbalances. You can you can drink great stuff for not on me. Yeah, that's great. And I knew you have a white rum distillery, but do you have your own winery? I do. Um, so I started the wine industry in the kingdom of Bhutan in the Himalayas. Uh, and so I have nine vineyards there. Um, and we've been working on the project for about seven or eight years. Um, we'll probably make our first wine in 2024. Okay. And I, I guess that that's huge, right? That's like, that's like the, not the Super Bowl, but that's like your, your debutante ball, right? That's like your first coming out with it. Well, so the last time that a country that didn't have grapes built a wine industry, I think was New Zealand in the 1800s. So this has not been done in the world in 200 years. So yeah, it's, it's (laughs) debutante ball of a, yeah, it's a big coming out party. They're actually filming a documentary. Um, It's that, it's that kind of big of a deal. Awesome. Actually, I'm, I don't know if you can see I'm wearing my Bhutan wine t-shirt. <laughs> I like it. So it's not even like a debutante ball. It's like the first debutante ball in the country. Yeah, correct. It's been a really neat project. And and um, just because of the uniqueness of it and, and because of my global wine network, there's been a lot of attention being paid to this. I mean, I've done interviews all over the world from wine people that are like, wait, you're making wine in the Himalayas? what the hell tell me about it. so it's a cool well, thing well that's going to be awesome because i mean like uh do you know the the monasteries in uh greece it's a uh, meteora i think that's what it's called yeah mm-hmm. and the reason i i bought a bottle there just because it was made by monks but now you have one wine bottle made in the himalayas you know what i mean like not- actually you want to know a cool monk story sure Hit so, me with uh, monk story when in, in the kingdom of Bhutan, it is tradition that when a baby is born, you take it to the monastery and there are special monks who name the baby. Um, and they give the baby a first name and a second name. And so you can't tell who's related to anybody because nobody has the same last names because the monks just give them whatever second name they, they get. And so when we were thinking about the branding for our winery, I said, hey, let's have the monks name. Let's let's have them name our baby. And so I go to the master namer monk of the country and I go, hey, we got this wine baby. Can you name it? He goes, sure. So about six weeks later, he comes back and he goes, all right, the name of your winery is Serkem. S-E-R-K-E-M. Serkem. And I go, okay. <laughs> Does it have a meaning? And he goes, yeah. Uh, in the Buddhist religion, when you visit a monastery, it's customary to bring an offering for the gods. An offering could be food, or it could be booze, or it could be cash, or it could be whatever. If it's alcohol, the offering is called Serkem, and it is the alcohol of the gods. So that's, awesome. that's the name of my wine. Serkem. So are you doing a similar type thing for like each of the different the wines? Or is that not a thing? You don't name the wines. They're just the type of. Well, it, so it depends on who you are. Um, yeah. Some wineries name each one of their wines individually. Other 
uh, like Orange Swift is a good example. Um, you know, they have Papillon and they have seven vineyards or, you know, that each, each wine has a different name. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, I think we're going to stick with the branding of Sercam, um, but it'll be like Sercam Cabernet, Sercam Pinot Noir, Sercam Chardonnay, whatever the different um, grape varieties are. Probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all, all this is, we're figuring it out, right? So nothing set in stone uh, at this point, but my guess is, is that we'll stick with Sir Kim. I, and it's a cool story, like alcohol, the gods, like named by the master namer monks in the monasteries of the Himalayas. Like, here's yeah. the alcohol of Sir Kim. Yeah. Like, how it, cool is that? It, it's just like, obviously people are going to buy it just for the sake of trying it. You know what I mean? Like the, the second best part is that it will taste amazing and it'll get you past the first bottle. Like right. they'll be like, oh, let's get more bottles of uh, this. That would be my hope. Well, well, I I bet a lot of time and money that the wine is going to be good, but we don't know yet. Like we're we're figuring out. But I will say, so I I just got back from Bhutan uh, about a week ago, and the country was on lockdown for like most of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. I had not been there since February of 2020. It's the first time I had gotten to go back in like two and a half years, and I brought um, a small group of people with me, including some of the investors. In the company, and um, at one point we walked, we went to uh, the Punaka Valley. They have like this quarter mile long suspension bridge, which is sketchy as fuck, but it's cool to walk across. And so I, I took people there to walk across this, to the suspension bridge. And so we're walking across the suspension bridge, and there's a dude sitting at the end of the suspension bridge with a bucket full of guavas, and he's selling guavas. And he goes, here, you guys want some guavas? And we're like, yeah, we'll buy some guavas. So we buy a handful of guavas. And everyone starts eating the guavas. And people are like, holy shit, this is the best guava I've ever had in my life. And I go, that's our business model right there. Um, Bhutan has, as the only carbon negative country on the planet, they grow some of these most amazing crop ever in weird verticals like guava. Like, like, what was the last time you ate a guava? I was like, holy cow, I mean, wax poetic about a guava. Like, you just don't. And so I'm like, if you can grow the world's best guava, you've got to be able to grow some really interesting wine groups. And that's what we bet a ton of money and time on. Well, jury's out. We'll we'll let you know in 2024 if I was right or if I was wrong. So why is it it so far away? It takes two to... Three years just for like a first batch. Yeah, when you plant um, when you plant a grapevine, it takes three to five years for the vine to start producing grapes. And so we had to um, first off, it's the only carbon negative country on the planet, and so you can't just like show up with a suitcase full of invasive species and start planting shit in the ground. So I had to work with the country to get them. Uh, excited about the art of the possible for wineries. So that took a little while. And then we had to find spot. And Bhutan has a lot of different altitude. Like the bottom end of the country is like 500 feet in altitude. And the top is like 27,000 feet in altitude. But that span is like 300 miles. So it's basically just goes straight up. So we had to find different spots. Um, and then we weren't sure what grape varieties were going to work. So we had to plant a bunch of different grape varieties and a bunch of different levels and not everything's working um 
And so it's it's just taken us a little while to figure stuff out, but we're getting pretty close. And we had a we had a lot of good grapes this year. Um and I think next year is gonna be even better. And then 2024 is probably going to be big. Yeah, that the debutante ball. The debutante ball, and I, I can't even imagine the logistics of getting it from point A to, I don't know, wherever your distribute your main distribution hub is. I, the logistics, imports, ah, that must so, have been crazy. Um, yeah, the the good news on the on the export side is. You can, uh, the port of Kolkata in India is about a 12 hour drive. So you can just drive down the hill. What's that? That's not too bad then. No, not too bad. And I mean, in Kolkata is a, is a industrial port. So I can ship out. What's more difficult is within the country, um, trying to get over the, the mountains because our vineyards are all over the place. And so what we d- determined just on this last trip is we were going to build a single production facility. I think we're going to need to build multiple because the West and the East are separated by an 18 hour drive over a really sketchy road that rains in the summer. And inevitably there's avalanches that kill people every year. Okay. And so I don't want to be trying to drive truckloads of grapes over that pass. Yeah. Uh, Cause so it was a harvest, right? Correct. Yep. So what we'll probably need to do is have a bunch of different smaller scale production facilities where we're making smaller batches and then we consolidate wine, you know, probably down in the south by the Indian border where we can ship it out to Kolkata pretty easily. Yeah, lots of interesting challenges. Here's another challenge. Check this out. So um, in the south of Bhutan, there it's very hot. Mm-hmm. And it rains like crazy in the summertime. So we had sort of written that off as like, this is not a viable place to go grow grapes. But we started talking about saying, hey, we could use some advanced um, farming techniques to, because it's so hot there, we can make the grapes go dormant in the summertime and then have them grow in the winter. Mm -hmm. And then we harvest in the springtime which is awesome because you can then get two harvests a year. You get a harvest in the fall with the regular stuff and a harvest in the spring with the, with the, uh, the other stuff. And so like, we should try this and see mm-hmm. if it works. So we planted a bunch of grapes down there and we started, we started growing them. And uh, I'm on our weekly call with our viticulture team. And I go, Hey, how are the grapes doing in Gallifrey? This is literally like a week and a half. And, uh, and the, our viticulturalist, viticulturist that's in the country is like oh man the grapes are going to be great but i think we're going to have an elephant problem it's like oh an elephant problem like what's the problem he goes well the elephants are like just tromping around down there and we think they're going to trample down the vineyards like oh wow okay uh i don't know what to do about that (laughs) i've never had an elephant problem then not not a lot of uh uh, technical grape expertise on how to manage the elephant in the vineyard problem. Like, you can't spray for elephants. You can't build a fence. Like Napa doesn't have an elephant problem. Bordeaux doesn't have an elephant problem. So I got this elephant problem. I don't know what I'm going to do about it, by the way. Um, as near as I can tell, I'm the only guy in the world with an elephant problem. Well, that that's another good selling gimmick. You could basically put an elephant on the bottle. 
we thought about that actually. And, and I, I actually uh, think it's an interesting take on, you know, the elephant in the room, the elephant in the vineyard um, is a cool, is a cool story. Now uh, that vineyard's pretty young, so I don't know if it's going to work or not yet. But mm-hmm. if it does, I'm going to try to figure out a way to wrap the elephant narrative into it because I think it's a cool narrative that nobody yeah. else has. Like maybe even donate to the local elephant refuge if there is one, something like that. I don't know. Yeah, that's actually a great idea. Um, uh, proceeds from every bottle go to supporting. You people know. love people love elephants. My my two year old son, the first animal he figured out how to do was. He basically yeah. lifts his hand up. So, yeah, elephants are cool, and elephants are smart as shit too. Um, what would be awesome would be if if this works, and we end up being able to develop out this this region of the country. Um, it would be awesome to imagine photos of like vineyards with elephants in the vineyards. I mean, come on, that'd make a hell of a poster. Yeah, that would be awesome. And then you could say, uh, this is extreme, but using the using the elephant's uh, excrement as fertilized, I don't know, that's crazy. Oh, no, for, for sure. And, and and this is this is where we get into some like some geeky technical um, viticulture stuff. So um, manure, certain types of manure, particularly like chicken and duck manure, mm-hmm. um, has a high percentage of nitrogen, which is really, really good for wine grapes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have not done a detailed fecal analysis of elephant manure, but to your point, like it could be like a really potent source of stuff that the vines could greatly benefit from, which makes it even cooler, right? Yeah. I mean, like you said, I mean, what other winery is elephant adjacent? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. that, does, that doesn't really seem like a thing. So right. you've got all this all this, like your own winery, your own, how, how do you make time for the, your, your professor at SoCal uh, and just all these things you're doing? Like, how do you, how do you manage that? What, what's your, what's your technique? Um, so a couple things. One is I, I mentioned, I talked a little bit about my divorce. Um, I have three kids. And at the time I was a single dad and I had kids in different schools and doing different stuff. And so I, for about a decade, I got up at three o'clock in the morning and would work and then go do kid stuff and then work a little bit more. And then I would feed the kids and showers and baths or whatever. And then I would stay up late and work. And so I did that for about a decade, purely as a survival mechanism. Um, and then um, once the kids aged out, all of a sudden I had capacity galore because I had trained my body to operate. Like so that's one thing. And then the second thing, um, is I am a biphasic sleeper. Do you know about biphasic sleep? Is that the four hour segments split apart? Yeah. That's what presidents usually do, right? Because they have to basically, if they're, especially if there's Middle East problems, they basically have to wake up when operations are going on at like one or two a.m but that's how you operate that's how i operate and so um biphasic is actually less i mean yes you can do it uh as a condition of your environment but it's it's more that genetically you are predisposed to certain sleep patterns biphasic sleep is like an ancient tribal 
No masks, um, I would imagine, right? Because they can't stay in the same place. They have to keep moving. Is that kind yeah, of yeah? Well, I think it was more like you would, you would, uh, you know, the sun would go down in the in the in the tribe, and then everyone like catches a few hours of sleep, and then you're up because someone's got to like watch the village and make sure that the night the nocturnal predators don't come in, and then you grab a couple more hours, you know, right when the sun starts to come up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a it's a totally normal tribal form of sleeping that some people are genetically predisposed to. And so once I figured, once I figured this out, like initially I was like, I'm up in the middle of the night, this is bullshit. I'm like rolling around and can't sleep. Once I figured it out and like, Oh, this is actually a superpower channel it. So what'll happen is, is um, I'll wake up at two in the morning and then I'll work for three hours This is usually when I do like a lot of my writing Mm -hmm. is in the middle of the night. And then I grab a couple more hours of sleep, you know, at 5 a.m. And then I'm ready to go for the day. So I can I can slap in an extra three hours of of work a day because Mm -hmm. of my biphasic sleep patterns. What happens when you hit like a like a meeting you have to get to and it, it just keeps on adding on and adding on? What happens then? Uh, well, that's, that happens all the time, actually. I, I definitely accumulate sleep debt. And part of it is because I'm in time zones all, all around the world yeah. constantly. Um, but typically what will happen is is about uh, day 10, um, I, I need to just shut down for a day. And basically kind of catch up. Yep. And I'll usually sleep like about 10 hours and then I'll kind of lay on the couch and do a lot of nothing and just kind of reset um, the body clock. But Uh, it seems like it, when you add it all up, you're still getting a lot more in the end, like out of those 10 days. Totally. And and also for me, I think um, like, I don't want like routine drives me crazy. Like, I don't want routine. I want this life that's just every day is interesting and we'll see what the fuck happens, right? And so um, the price of that is occasionally you you burn the candle a little too thin at both ends and you need to you need to go kind of decompress. And I, I've been doing this for long enough that I kind of know and I, I know my body and I know when it needs to reset. And I'll tell my girlfriend, I'll be like, baby, I'm shutting down today. Like, Leave me alone. Keep the dogs away from me. You know, don't bother me. I'm just going to veg. So there's one question I like to end the podcast with. That's kind of like my full circle question. And it's it's a, it's a two-part question. And please uh, take your time to think about it. What is something that your parents did that uh you like to pass on to your kids and then the other part is what is something that um you try to do differently that your parents did wow that is pretty that's deep um well so i i think one of the things that was um very beneficial for me growing up is that my parents and my mother in particular was very against television. And so she has never never had a television in her house. To this day, does not have a television in the house. 
And so growing up, um, I had to find ways to entertain myself. Um, and I had sisters, no brothers. And so they were less interested in doing the shit that I was interested in. And so because of that, I read and I, I am, I, I, I read to this day, I probably read four to five books a week. Um, and, and I think that's a little bit of a superpower, um, that, and I read everything from fiction to nonfiction to historical stuff. I just, anything that's, that's in a book form, I'm going to check it out and see if I, at, at any point in time, I have four or five books, um, that I'm, that I'm in various stages of, and I read very, very fast. And so that has given me uh, a lot of advantages. Um, and I, and if I could pass one thing on to my children, it would be this idea of just go read a fucking book and see what happens. Um, so, so I think that that's been super beneficial. Uh, what would I not do? Um, I think, um, so my growing up, my parents were very focused on what I'll call the recipe. And I'll tell you what the recipe is. The recipe is you go to high school, you study, you get really good grades, and that gives you the opportunity to, to get into a good college. And you go to that college and you get really good grades. And uh, that gives you the opportunity to have a job. And then that job gives you the ability to immediately get married and, you know, get the house in the suburbs and, and this, this fucking recipe. And if you deviated from the recipe, like, that's bad. Well, I was a punk rock skate kid. You know? like, I could care less about high school. Uh, I could care less about the, I didn't even start college until I was 23 years old. Um, I, I, had, I graduated borderline last in my class of, of high school. Matter of fact, it was so bad. I graduated like 392nd in the class of 408. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't quite at the bottom, but I was pretty damn close. And the principal made me sit next to him at graduation, and I put a DMZ of empty seats around us because they were afraid I was going to act out, which I would have for sure. Now, uh, my my sisters were valedictorians and salutatorians and fucking whatever. They 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 got lauded for their academic efforts. I had an amazing time in high school um, and uh, and I I think I learned a lot of life skills that I apply today by not following the recipe. Um, and I also make enormous <laughs> more money than all of my sisters put together <laughs> who follow the recipe, right? So this is a very long-winded answer to your question, but I think what would I not do is I think it's just acknowledgement that everybody gets to walk their own path and to force a child into a path that is not what they're destined to walk on is not a recipe for long-term success. It's a recipe for a problem later. And 
and I sort of battered my way into it. Um, but I, I refused to, um, to bend <laughs> to the, the whims of the recipe and, uh, and it worked out okay. So, um, that's probably what I wouldn't do is, and I, and I, that's what I've done with my kids too, by the way. Um, it's like, Hey, look, this is your life. It's not my life. You get to figure it out. And by the way, you're going to figure it out for the next 80 years. You're going to be figuring shit. Out. That's fine. Uh, so, um, I'll support you. I'll, I'll be there to pick you up when you fall down, go out, make a bunch of mistakes and figure out what your path is and recognize it's, it's going to be different than your sister and your brother and whatever. So long-winded answer, but fuck the recipe. It was great. I loved it. A little touch of, uh, your experience <laughs> and you had a good negative and positive without yeah. even thinking of it for long. So that was great. Well, what's uh, funny is, is like, like I've done a lot of these podcasts and, and usually you get asked about, Oh, tell me a story about this and that, but that that's actually a pretty deep question. So I got to give you mad props for, uh, for, for asking them. Uh, it did force me I, to step back and think a little bit. I've been using it for a while. And the funny thing is I, I really haven't, uh, gotten the same answer from a lot of people i'll tell you another quick story um when i was in like third grade um we didn't have a television and so you know i'm at school and you're trying to connect to the other kids and there was a new tv show out called the dukes of hazard and all the kids at school were talking about the dukes of hazard and so i was like Oh yeah, like uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not weird. Like uh, you know, I know about that. Blah blah blah. So fast forward like ten years, and I'm at somebody's house, and the Dukes of Hazard come on, and I start watching this show, and in my head, what I knew about Dukes is that they were uh, royalty in England. <laughs> so I thought that this television show the whole time for like 10 years i thought that this television show was about royalty in england turns out it's not <laughs> turns out it's not about that at all uh and i figured this out and I, was, I remember like i was in high school and i was sitting at my friend's house i'm like holy shit like this isn't about royalty and they're like dude what is wrong with you like, like why would it be about royalty i'm like dukes you know like dukes and and you know <laughs> you go, no um, but in, in retrospect, while they were learning about the Dukes of Hazard, I was reading a ton of stuff. And so net net on the back end, it's a superpower today, but it sucked at the time. So yeah, it's crazy how most of that stuff, I guess, up until you're, I don't know, you could change it from 18 to 35 or 40, that things change basically where you are. It, well, know, if you were finding out with a two-year-old, there's no there's no manual for how to how to parent, and you do the best you can, and you hope it works out. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's funny. I, I had a um, during the pandemic last Christmas, my parents called me up and like, "Hey, can we take you to dinner for Christmas?" I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. So I go to dinner with them, and my mom immediately starts in with like, "Oh, you, you know, remember remember what." piece of shit kid you were in high school you didn't pay attention and i go mom mom wait a minute like that's your narrative my narrative is that like i had an amazing time in high school i made amazing friends and i learned life skills that i use literally on a daily basis today and i'm 
by whatever metric you want to measure, I'm I'm successful. And so like, like, isn't that what high school is all about? And she was like, yeah, but you did it wrong. <laughs> like, oh, okay, I did. Like, I think I did it right for me. Well, that was great, sir. Yeah. That was awesome. Is there anything you want to plug besides the book, the podcast, obviously the 2024 uh, Bhutan winery? Yeah, if anyone wants to come to Bhutan, come check it out. So uh, yeah, I guess... Um, if you're if your listeners are at all interested in learning about wine in a sort of non-threatening way with a lot of F-bombs, they can go to drinkingandknowingthings.com and they can uh, sign up for my wine newsletter. Um, it, it'll be an easy way for them to, to become much more knowledgeable and confident about wine without doing any work whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's links to all my books there. If people are interested in learning about the Bhutan Wine Company and what's going on with that, bhutanwine.com um, and uh, the rum company, SoCal Rum, um, socalrum.com. Um, and if, if people want to touch base with me for business purposes, uh, they can reach me on LinkedIn. Michael Jurgens, just Google Michael Jurgens, and uh, I'll be I'll be at the top of the list. Um, although there is a there is a football player for the Carolina Panthers who has the same name as me, spelled the same way, which uh, is hmm. very interesting. Um, and is there a uh, I guess a social platform that you prefer that people can follow you on? I mean, I, I'm not a, I'm an old guy, right? Like, so I'm not good with that shit. But I I I am on Instagram uh, at, at drinking and knowing. Um, and, uh, I usually post like wine stuff up on there Okay. and occasionally other photos of dumb shit that I'm doing, like whatever that happens to be, but they certainly welcome to follow me there. And I'm on Twitter from a business perspective at Michael jerk, Michael underscore jerk. So lots of ways to get in touch with me. And I, I, I truly, uh, I welcome anybody who wants to engage in a, in a discussion with me on topics that are interesting to me and are you know where people have things to say like i I love hearing from people and i if you send me an email or dm odds are i'm going to respond michael i appreciate you let me let me come on and and be more interesting than you for uh for for an hour or so it it wasn't hard i'll tell you that sir i think uh you had me in the first couple minutes so (laughs) well thanks again for having me on and uh look forward to uh coming back on in 2024 and drinking some pudan wine with you Sounds good, sir. Cheers. If you like this week's episode of People More Interesting Than Me, please follow me on Apple Podcasts so you won't miss out on more episodes like these.